0: Today's scripture is from Acts 26, verses 22 through 26. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to raise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The, the king is familiar familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has, happened, has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Andy Stanley's latest book is called Irresistible. And in it, he talks about one of his hobbies, um, one of his weird hobbies, is to read or listen to deconversion stories. In other words, he kind of bends his ear towards uh, anything on the topic of who is leaving the faith and why they are leaving the faith. And the reasons are pretty much all over the map, but essentially, he says, it always comes back to belief. Um, The reason behind the, the belief might be science or logic or lack of evidence in their minds. But in the end, it always comes down to one thing. They just don't believe anymore. And in Stanley's mind, that raises a great, huge, big question. And the question is this. What did they believe, because these were people who believed in Jesus, what did they believe that they don't believe anymore that left them believing that they are no longer believers? Did you catch that? You follow that? In other words, what did these people find impossible to keep believing that they once believed was essential to following Jesus? What are those things? And here's what he writes. He writes, in my conversations with deconverted people, I've never heard a deconversion story involving disbelief in something essential to following Jesus. I've talked to plenty of folks who found it impossible to continue believing things that they were taught at home or at church uh, and assumed were essential to the Christian faith. They're often shocked and they're sometimes relieved when I assure them that I don't believe what they don't believe either. Or that a person can follow Jesus without believing whatever it is they were sure put them outside of the faithful. Deconversion stories I've encountered in blogs and books almost always involve an experience that created doubt that eventually blossomed into full-blown unbelief. But there's no necessary correlation between those experiences and unbelief. The same is true for those who have lost faith because of something they read or heard in a classroom. After all, there are respected scientists and mathematicians and historians whose faith remains unwavering in the face of the same facts, figures, and findings that cause others to walk away. And what's he saying? Well, he's saying this, that there is an essential message to the Christian faith. And people all over the place are walking away from it largely because they don't know it. They think they know it and they think they know what's essential to the Christian faith and they can't buy into whatever they think is essential anymore and so they walk away. And that's what our NO series is for. That's why it's so important. The NO series is is about exploring the bare bones message that the first believers shared about Jesus. And while we do that, we're asking ourselves, what are the essential truths that we have to grasp in order to have a chance of following Jesus and following him for life and following him well? And so, NO is an acronym that uh, we've come up with to help us remember these main bullet points of those first messages. So we've talked about, last week we talked about king, that's what the K stands for. Today we'll, 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 we'll talk about the word nailed. Next week, overcome and offers. And then the final week, worship. And when we boil all of the messages that were first delivered about Jesus down These four points come up over and over and over and over. So last week, we introduced uh, our series by learning about the way every message introduced Jesus, that he was king. He was sent by God. He was commissioned. He was appointed. He was anointed. He was chosen by God himself to come into the world and to do something. In other words, he is the king, and he's a very different kind of king. He's not the normal tyrant or despot kind of king he's the kind of king that just commands us to love and what's more is he's willing to love us first before he commands it of us and it makes him the kind of king that we all hope for that we all want and so this king came into the world And he was sent by God, he was doing good, he was healing people, and he was doing miracles that you would expect somebody to do if they claimed to be the king of the universe and sent by God, and what was the result? What was the result? What kind of reception did God's own son, the king of heaven, receive here on earth? And we're going to do a little Bible study now, just like we did last week, and we're going to let those first believers tell us the answer to that question, okay? So, and as we read these scriptures, I want you to see if you can find the bullet point number two that is so common in all of these, that pops up in every one of these messages. In Acts chapter two, Peter's preaching to thousands of Jewish pilgrims. He says this, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You, what's the word? Crucified and what's the word? Killed by the hands of lawless men. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John heal a man at the temple. And the people are amazed, and they say, "No, it's not us; it's Jesus." Let me tell. It. Let us tell you about him. And this is what they say: You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he uh, d- had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one, asking for a murderer to be granted to you. And you, what's the word? Killed the author of life in. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested because of this event, and they find themselves before the Jewish religious leaders, and they say the same thing. They say, Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, Peter in chapter 5 says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you, what's the word, killed, by hanging him on a tree. Uh, In uh, chapter Ten. When the Gentiles get the message of Jesus for the very first time, Peter says this, and we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Paul in the synagogue in Acts chapter 13, which is a Jewish place of worship. He says this to the people he preaches to, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul is preaching in Thessalonica in another synagogue in in chapter 17, and he says that He was reasoning with them from the scriptures because he says, I have to prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then rise from the dead. And in your text today that was read to you just a minute ago, Paul is before the Roman ruler Agrippa, and he says, I stand here testifying before both great and small, saying nothing but what has already been said, that the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. So in all of that... Bible study that was a little overkill, but you got the point, right? What's the second bullet point in all of those addresses? Every time that the story of Jesus is told, the first point is that he's the king sent by God. And the second point is that for all of his efforts in coming to the world in righteousness and helping and healing and teaching and pointing people to the kingdom of God, for all of that effort, he was condemned to die on a cross. And he was hung on that cross by the very people that he came to help. He suffered until he died. He was taken down. His body was taken down. It was put in a tomb. And that's bullet point number two. And we're going to use the word nailed for all of that because he dies on a cross. He dies on a cross. He is nailed to it and dies. And so whenever those first believers tell the story about Jesus, here's what they do. They look right in the eyes of the people that they're talking to and they say unashamedly, you did that. You killed the king of heaven by nailing him to a cross until he died. Now, when they said that, no one in the first century misunderstood what had happened to Jesus. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest forms of capital punishment ever devised. The Romans had perfected it and they reserved it for killing traitors and rebels. And it was a gruesome death. Two wooden beams were fashioned together. They were fixed together, commonly in the shape of a lowercase t, kind of like the cross that is above me. The victim's feet were pierced with a single nail that held them together on the vertical beam, and then their arms were stretched out so that the forearms could be nailed to the horizontal beam, and the vertical beam was then dropped into a hole in the ground, and the whole thing was stood upright, and then the criminal was left to hang this way. And the whole point of crucifixion was to prolong the suffering. Victims could hang on cross Process for days, and when they finally did die, it was usually of something that you wouldn't think of. It was usually by way of suffocation. The thirst was intense. The weight of the body pushing down caused inexorable pain, and victims would have to push up from the feet that that were nailed to to the beam in order to take breaths to stay alive. And finally, there would be no strength. There would be so much pain that they couldn't lift themselves up and they would die because they literally could not breathe any longer. That's crucifixion. And if you can fathom it, in the case of Jesus, it was even worse. Because before he even got to a cross, There was a crown of thorns pushed into his head. There was verbal abuse. There was 39 lashes given to Jesus. 39 lashes means that he was whipped 39 times by a whip made of strips of leather and inside those strips of leather were tied bones and little bits of metal. And so when that whip fell across a back, it didn't just gash flesh, it tore flesh off. And that's what happened to Jesus. And then he had to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. And then came the nails. And then came the hanging. And then came the suffering. And in the case of Jesus, finally a spear was thrust into his side so that they could make sure he was dead. That's the crucifixion of Jesus. And these early believers, when they told that story, They looked right in the face of their audience and they said, you did that. That's gutsy. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, that's gutsy. Thank you. Thank you for indulging me. That's gutsy. Because here's the truth. I would rather have left that out today. That part doesn't go with coffee and muffins. It just doesn't. And the first believers, I think it would have been better if they left it out too. In the first century world, presenting a savior to people who had been crucified on a cross was an exercise in futility. The minute that they said, yeah, our king, Jesus, was sent by God, but yeah, he was hung on a tree... They then had to explain why. Why would their God, who had sent his own son, supposedly the prince and the king of heaven, why would God send him to do all this great stuff on the earth and live this incredible life just to die in such a shameful and painful way? That's a pretty valid point. And for Jewish people, the cross was a problem. Because if Jesus is the Messiah if he's really the Christ, the anointed Jewish king, then what he should have done was ridden into Jerusalem and had, he should have been victorious in overthrowing the oppressive Roman government. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. That's what he was expected to do. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus did ride into Jerusalem, but he, wasn't, he didn't triumph over Rome. He was executed by Rome. He didn't liberate anything. And so the cross, in a Jewish mind, was evidence that God himself had cursed a person. Moses actually wrote this in the Old Testament, that Um, A man hanged on a tree was cursed by God. That's Deuteronomy 21. And so Paul will say the same thing in Galatians chapter 3. So to Jews, to the Jewish mind, crucifixion meant that Jesus was cursed by God himself. And that's a terrible way to start out to try to convince Jewish people that this man is the savior of the world. They should have just left it out. But it gets worse. Because for Gentile people too, the cross is a problem. Those who don't follow the Mosaic law, like the Israelites, are called Gentile people. That's all of you, that's us who aren't Jewish, right? That's everybody who's not Jewish. And the cross for Gentile people carried the same kind of message. The cross meant that this man that hung there must have been condemned by all the gods. It didn't matter which one, take your pick, a Roman god, a Greek god, some God you want to make up, it doesn't matter. No one would believe that this man was God himself if men were able to nail him to a cross and kill him. So why even talk about the fact that Jesus was crucified? Why is this an essential part of the message that they can't not mention? And we could speculate, I mean, maybe, maybe the first believers are just upset, right? They've just lost a good friend. Maybe they want revenge by way of a guilt trip, and so they're going to lay it on them, you know? We have that, that tendency sometimes. We lose somebody that we love, and we, we want blood, right? But we never get that sense in any of their messages. These, these first followers, in fact, they give the opposite sense. There, this wasn't about closure, But they told the story of Jesus so that their hearers could have something. There's absolutely something deeper going on. The cross was an essential ingredient to the story and it could not be left out. It could not be skipped over. And so today I want us to ask two things. Number one, who killed Jesus? And number two, why did they do it? Who killed Jesus and why was it Necessary. That's what Paul says. He says it was necessary that the Christ suffer. Why was it necessary that Jesus go through this kind of death? So question number one, who killed Jesus? And of course, if you're paying attention historically, there's one answer that pops up over and over and over and over again. And it's the wrong answer. It's the knee jerk answer. It's partially correct, but it is woefully inadequate um, as to who killed Jesus. And people will oftentimes just say the Jews. The Jews killed Jesus. But I want you to think of how short that falls because there were Jews on all sides. There were Jews who were following Jesus up until the day he was hung on a cross. There were Jews who tried to save Jesus. Jesus himself is a Jew, and so to lump all of these people together and to say they did it is not only ignorant, but it's kind of a nice pile of fuel for racism, and I think we can avoid it by just looking at Scripture. If we turn to Acts chapter 4, there's a prayer that was prayed by the early church. They get together, and they want to thank God for what's happening, and they say some telling things. In the middle of this prayer, listen, he said, they say this, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. In other words, these are the people who brought the cross to uh, happen. Okay. And who were they? Who do they implicate? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the people of Israel. And so who do they implicate for killing Jesus? Who is included? Well, Herod there, he's a Jewish leader. So we've implicated the Jewish government, the, the Israelite government. Uh, Pilate is there, and he's a Roman leader. So we've implicated the Roman government. Gentiles are all the people who aren't Jewish. And so we've implicated every person that isn't a Jew. And then they say the people of Israel, in other words, the Jews, and they are Jews they themselves. And so we can rightly look at that list and say, Everyone. Everyone put Jesus on the cross, and it's right to go a step further and to say it wasn't just everybody then, it's everyone now. It's you and me, because Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That was the scripture during communion time. And so you put Jesus on the cross. I put Jesus on on the cross. And it's plain who carried out the crucifixion, but it's also clear that we caused it too. Everyone put him on the cross. But I'm sorry to say, all of that is a superficial discussion. Why? Because of the next verse in their prayer. The ultimate answer to who killed Jesus is even more confounding. If we add verse 28, it is this. All the people were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And what was it that God had planned? What was it that God had arranged? What was it that God was ordaining? Peter says it this way in his uh, sermon a couple chapters earlier. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what do we learn? Here's the amazing part. Jesus was crucified according to the foreordination of God. God determined it. God ordained it. God planned it. God arranged it. God predestined that at a particular place, in a particular time, Jesus Christ would die on the cross. It was fixed. He had to die. He had to be crucified. And then at the end of his message, after he says, after he blames God for hanging Jesus on a cross, he turns to his hearers and Peter says, and all of you out there who crucified him need to repent because what you did was wrong. And so who killed Jesus? And the answer is, all of it is true. The Jews killed Jesus. The Gentiles killed Jesus. Herod killed Jesus. Pilate killed Jesus. You killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. We all did. But ultimately, God did. And that is astounding. That God would predestine and ordain that his own son be put through a death like the cross. And not only that, but Jesus would go willingly, he chose the cross, he embraced the cross, he said, I lay my life down of my own accord. He knew it was necessary. And so the, que- the second question follows quite nicely out of the first, if God crucified Jesus, then why in the world did he do that? Why was it necessary, as Paul says, and Peter says, and Jesus himself will say, for Jesus to suffer on the cross? And to this question, if we look through the writings of the first believers, this is no no joke. I'm I'm not exaggerating here. We can find 50 reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to die on a cross. And that's going to take us a while, so let's get to them. Number one, Oh, I'm I'm so disappointed that you actually think that I would lead you through 50 of those. Like, that'd take us till Tuesday. Yeah. I have created a monster. I am so sorry for that. Let's skip to number 37. How about that? And I just want to share one. One of those 50. And it's a huge one. It's this. The cross is necessary because it's the only way the cursed are cured. It's the only way that cursed are cured. Do you know we're cursed? We're cursed because we cannot uphold the law that God has given us to live by. We can't do it. We can't measure up. God himself says it this way in Deuteronomy, He says, "Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them." And so, can you keep the law? Anybody here ever been successful? At keeping all of the law, I don't see any hands, and I, I shouldn't raise my hand either. We are all cursed. We're cursed because we fall short of the standard that God has called us to. Paul says it this way, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we glorify and worship what we enjoy and love most. And so much of the time, that isn't God. And so we're cursed. The reason that sin is no small matter is because God is just. He's righteous. He's holy. He's the same way you are when somebody wrongs you. When somebody wrongs you, you're out for blood, right? You want justice to happen. And that's, that comes from God. God is that way. And so he can't sweep offenses against him under the rug. There's a holy wrath about God that has to be satisfied. And so Paul says that the wages of sin, in other words, what we earn for falling short is death. We are cursed. But God is also love. God is just. God is love. We are cursed. God is also love. And the love of God can't rest with the curse that hangs over us. And God desperately loves us. He wants to rescue us from this hole that we've been put into because of our sin. And he wants to get us out of that. And so what will win? Will God love us? at the expense of his holiness and his justice? Or will God give us what we deserve? Will he condemn us at the expense of his great love for us? And which will it be? And that's the tension of the whole history of humanity. Will God send love or will God send wrath? The answer is this. John Piper puts it extremely well, just in a few words. He says this, God's love, is willing to meet the demands of his justice. And I will add, he does it on the cross. He will be the solution to our rebellion. Jesus himself will be killed. God himself will hang on a cross in our place. And as these first believers begin to share the essential message about Jesus, they explain that his suffering on the cross, his blood shed sacrificially. That's what pays the penalty for sin, for your sin, for my sin. Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath for sin on the cross, and he becomes the curse that we all are. And Paul writes it this way that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's why the cross was necessary. Do you remember the part of the message where I said that it was so offensive to hear if you were a Jewish person or a Gentile person that? This man was hung on a cross because how could God allow his son to be cursed like that? And that's a valid objection, but it's also its own answer. God would indeed allow his son to be cursed, but it wasn't evidence of his divine displeasure. Instead, it was evidence of his love for the world. And the cross is the only way the cursed are cured. Jesus becomes the substitute for us. He takes God's wrath for sin. And so God is able to remain just and holy. And at the very same time, he's able to stay the loving God and his love remains true to us because he took the wrath on himself. There's a great quote in your bulletin that I would encourage you to spend some, some uh, devotion time this week in. Just read through it. And process it. I'm just going to read the last line. It says this, love has never been more truly love and the law has never been more truly law than the moment Christ died on the cross. God was both justice and love. And he demonstrated it by sending his son to a cross. And so the cross is love fulfilling the law and the cross is the law being fulfilled by love. And the cross is necessary to make both God's love and justice possible at the same time. And that's only one of 50 reasons why Jesus had to die on the cross. I'm going to call the band up. And as I do, I want to just make one more point about this one reason. I said it this way, that the cross is the only way the cursed are cured. And Christianity gets a bad rap here. We get a lot of criticism when we start saying that Jesus is the only way. But I want to remind you that we didn't come up with that. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to God except through me. And there's a reason that he said it. And the reason is the cross. I'm going to throw it out by, I'm going to explain it by way of a hypothetical. And I've, I've used this before and I will use it again because it needs to be ingrained in us as to what the cross is trying to tell us. Let's say that you and a friend are standing side by side and you are in front of a great big bonfire and you're just having a good time and maybe your roasts of marshmallows are just you know, talking or whatever, and all of a sudden, your friend turns to you and says, I want to show you how much I love you, and he jumps into the bonfire. What would you think? Would you think, oh, wow, look how much he loved me? No. You would think, what was he on? What did he have before he got here? Let's change the illustration just a little bit. Let's say you and that same friend are standing outside of something else that's burning, but this time it's a house. It's not a bonfire, it's a house. And somebody comes up to you and says, your wife, your son, your daughter, your girlfriend, your boyfriend is in the house. And without thinking, your friend takes off to go into the house to rescue that person that means so much to you. And they rescue your loved one, but at the price of their own life. What would you say about your friend then? You would say, oh my goodness, how much he loved me to do that. And don't you see? Don't you see what the cross is telling us? If Jesus Christ dies, if he gives us life on the cross and we're not in any trouble, if we don't have the wrath of God on us, if we're not on our way to an eternity without God, if we are not lost and separated from God, then his... Death isn't a sign of love, it's foolish, it's stupid, it's a tragic waste, it's nonsensical. If any other religious way can save us, including our own effort to get right with God, then the cross is like Jesus jumping into the bonfire for no reason. But if on the cross he's doing what he says he's doing, if he's meeting the demands of God's justice, if He's paying for all of that sin that separates us from God, if He's becoming the curse for us so that we can be blessed and not be a curse then that means that the cross is the only way to accomplish what needs to be done. It's the only way for us to be right with God. And it's Jesus jumping into a burning house to save someone because that's the only thing that can be done. And either the cross is everything or nothing. Either it's the only way that we can be cured from our curse or it's just utter stupidity. It can't ever be anything in between. Did you catch the line from the song that we learned today? Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. And that's when death was arrested and my life began. Father, we thank you for this great sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. That he became a curse for us so that we could be blessed. He became sin legally so that we could be made the righteous of God Legally, What an amazing turn of events that the cross, this thing meant for evil, would be turned around in this way and used for good. God, that gives us hope. We thank you that on the cross Jesus was able to say it's finished. It's finished. Sin has been paid for. The law has no more reign in the lives of people. And Father, would you help us to see that Jesus Christ taking your wrath means that you love us without end. And may we respond to that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.